When I was in college, I got what I think is a pretty special and rare opportunity, and that was that I got the blessing to have my longtime best friend and cousin as a roommate. Now, we were uh, five months apart from birth and spent most of our lives four hours away from each other, uh, but even though we were physically distanced, relationally, we are about as close as it gets. I've got a couple pictures. Here's one of us uh, on the green practicing our short game. Uh, I've got the pose down. He's clearly got to work on his swing a little bit. Here's another one of us in college trying to grow facial hair, but really couldn't quite do it yet. And then as a bonus, here's one of us at Chipotle. That's uh, on Halloween. If you don't know, Chipotle gives $3 burritos on Halloween if you show up dressed up. So that's what we were doing there. You can take those down. Uh, but yeah, so it was, it was a pretty special dream come true to get to live with my cousin who I grew up four hours away from and was my best friend and then got to live together in college. And one of the things that I remember about rooming with my cousin is that pretty regularly we would turn down invites to go to the cafeteria with a big group of our friends and eat food. And instead we would take our food to go, we would bring it back to our room and we would watch Netflix or something like that. And uh, he would eventually explain to our friends that it wasn't anything personal. It was just that for whatever reason, when it came to mealtime, he liked to eat alone, typically watching a show where he could just kind of veg out and relax, be himself, not have to socialize. Now, what's interesting about that is he's actually a very extroverted person. But when it came to mealtime, he just kind of wanted some alone time. And I got to be the exception to that rule as a family member and as the roommate. And this is something that I cherished because there's something special about sharing a meal together. Some of my favorite memories about living with Jackson are these times in our room. Whether we were talking or not, we were just spending time together. There's something special about sharing a meal with somebody. It's almost like human instinct. If you think about it, when you're dating somebody new, you're trying to get to know them, your palms are sweaty, you're all nervous, what do you do? Usually the date involves some sort of food. If you've got a business meeting and you're meeting a new client, trying to get to know them, maybe schmooze them into doing a deal with you, what do you do? You take them out for lunch and you pay for their food. Whenever I hang out with my friends, I have plans, I usually ask if they want to go and get some food, whether Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, whatever it is. And if they ever say no, which isn't super common, but if they do, I usually try to sweeten the pot by offering to pay for them. Well, I feel like I probably shouldn't say that because if any of them see this, they're always going to say no now. But the reason I do that isn't because I'm super generous or because I'm super loaded, just in case you guys were confused. I'm not. But it's because the 5 to $10 for me is worth it if it means I get to share a meal with somebody I'm close with. In fact, civil rights activist Cesar Chavez said, if you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with him. The people who give you their food give you their heart. And we see this bonding that takes place. We see it taking place in our text today as Jesus and his disciples are preparing to eat the Passover. If you have your Bibles, we're in Mark 14, starting with verse 12. It says that on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Now I want to pause right here for a second. This is actually an anomaly in the culture at the time because men did not carry jars of water. Women did. 
men would carry wineskins. Now, as far as why that is, I don't really know, but it's not important to the story. What's important is that Jesus has given his disciples somebody that they can pick out of a crowd. Instead of going to Times Square and saying, look for somebody wearing Nikes, you're going to Times Square and saying, look for somebody in a big, giant, pink bunny suit, which, I don't know, in New York maybe isn't even still that rare, but he's giving someone they can pick out of a crowd. Now, we keep reading Verse 14, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Now I want to pause again. A couple more things to note is that this person whose house they're going to likely knows of Jesus, supports his ministry, and it follows him in some way or another. Because if he didn't, he probably wouldn't be okay with housing a fugitive. And then uh, beyond that, if two strangers were to walk into your house and say, the teacher asks, and you didn't know who this person was, you might have a few questions like, one, who is the teacher? Two, who are you? Three, why are you in my home? And four, please leave my home or I'll call the police. The other thing that I wanted to note in this, these two verses is that uh, large Jewish homes at this time typically had two levels, one main level where they kind of lived and went about their life, and then an upper room uh, that Jesus mentions here, and this served a few purposes, one of them being storage, but another one being that this is where rabbis would often teach their chosen band of most intimate disciples. And so Jesus here actually isn't breaking the mold. He's following the custom, saying to them that I want a room where I can eat and teach, or eat with and teach you guys, not eat them. That would be weird. Verse 16, the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So there they prepared, prepared the Passover. Now, if you're unaware what the Passover is, the Passover is a Jewish holiday celebration that celebrates God freeing the Israelites from slavery and leading them out of Egypt to the promised land. The name comes from the angel of death passing over the doorways that had lamb's blood over the top of them and sparing those lives, instead only taking the lives of those who didn't obey the command. This has a rich tradition and heritage in their religion, and therefore is a big deal that they celebrate every year. Think about how we celebrate Christmas as the birth of Jesus coming to earth for us. When we celebrate Christmas, we typically, some people do, and that's good too, but we typically don't just celebrate Christmas with just anybody. We celebrate it with our family and maybe some close friends. You don't typically invite the girlfriend or the boyfriend on the first week of dating to Christmas. You invite them when things are a little more serious. Knowing these things, we see that Jesus has prepared and made plans ahead of time, making preparations with the owner of the house and with the man with the jar of water, and that he cares about these uh, disciples on a closer, more friendship level, that these aren't just any people, it's not just anybody that's there, but it's a big deal that these 12 are invited to what he knows will be his last meal. It's important, and he wants to share it with them. We keep reading in verse 17. It says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, which kids, middle schoolers, high schoolers, anybody that's watching, if you're like me and you're ever at the dining table and your parents said, hey, four on the floor, don't lean back in your chair, it's bad for them. You can recite this verse and say, Mom, 
Dad, Jesus reclined at the table, and therefore I will too. Now, you're probably going to be doing the dishes, and rightfully so, but it is in the Bible. We continue, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now, we know from last week's passage that this person, and from tradition, that this person is Judas. And so, when we read uh, the story of Jesus, typically we kind of count Judas as one of the discount disciples. Like, he doesn't really count as one of the twelve because he's Judas. We all know what happens. But at this point, the twelve, all they know is that they're a close-knit group of people following Jesus together. They're friends. They don't know that it's Judas. That's why they're asking themselves, surely not I. They're asking and self-examining, it couldn't be me, could it? Now, Jesus identifies it as Judas in other uh, versions of this story in Matthew and in John, uh, not to the whole group, but to Judas individually. But there's a reason that this is sad. See, there's a large group of people that for a long time has been trying to kill Jesus. And for the most part, he seems relatively unfazed and unbothered by it. But now, this isn't the people out there This is one of the people in here, in the room, in the inner circle, that dips the bread into the bowl with him. It's sad. And we see that Jesus appeals in love to Judas one last time, saying, hey, you're in the room with me. You don't need to do this. Verse 21, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. A couple things here is that he warns Judas with his truth of the consequences that will happen, but again, giving him one last out, it seems. Now, he knows full well that Judas isn't going to listen to him, but he still offers him this. And that's kind of the human condition, that God offers us choices between right and wrong, gives us free will to choose between righteous and sinful, and in his love, he appeals to us, to choose love and to do the right thing. In his truth, he warns us of the consequences that take place when we sin and of the blessings that happen when we obey his word. But ultimately, because of his love, there's no compulsion. He doesn't force us to do anything. He gives us the choice. And that's evident also in this text because we see that the Son of Man will go just as it is written. At any point, Jesus could have stopped Judas. He could have done it divinely with some of the classics like the flood or a bear or a, a thundercloud or something like that. Or practically speaking, he could have just said, hey guys, the person I said was going to betray me 20 seconds ago, it's Judas. Get him. And realistically, Judas wouldn't have left that room alive probably. But he doesn't. He says the son of man will go just as is written. He's not going to stop Judas. And I think something that's really interesting about this story is that in Matthew's version of this same story of the Last Supper and of the betrayal, when Judas is bringing the religious leaders to Jesus to arrest him actively in the betrayal that Jesus has predicted here, in Matthew 26.50, this is an overlooked verse, I think, Jesus directly addresses him and it says that Jesus calls him friend. We can get that on the screen. It says, do what you came for, friend. 
I think this is a big deal, that Jesus, knowing full well what Judas is about to do, still chooses to call him friend. And the, probably the biggest betrayal in human history looks his betrayer in the eye and still acknowledges that he's a friend. I grew up with a friend that last year, a year and a half ago, fall, summer 2019, murdered his parents. This friend of mine, and I don't, I don't tell this story to speak ill of anybody, it's because it has a point. This friend of mine was adopted at a young age. His biological parents were abusive and negligent, and as a result, he had physical disabilities and I'm sure a lot of emotional and spiritual trauma. And he was adopted at a young age by this family that was influential in my community, a big part of my church, big part of our school, big part of the town. And they had a big family and adopted him and his brother and loved them and raised them as their own. For whatever reason, due to the, I don't even know what, these events transpired. And uh, at the funeral, the funeral is one of the craziest things I've ever experienced. Uh, we had it at the high school gym where, where the teacher or where the, the dad taught and the bleachers were completely full. There wasn't a seat empty. There were chairs lined the entire length of the gym floor, all of them full, and people lined out the door at this funeral. And the kids uh, of the parents and the siblings of, of the brother, weeping and mourning and grieving, shared story after story and life lessons from them, their mom and their dad. And not a week after these events had transpired, during this funeral, they stood up and they addressed our town and they asked us to forgive their brother and they prayed for him. And I was talking about these events and processing with them with a friend, a different friend, uh, sometime in the aftermath of everything that had happened. And we were talking about how could this happen and, and, and why did this happen? And he said something that I'll probably never forget until the day I die. And he said, you know what, Luke, you know what's crazy? is that if they could go back in time knowing what they know, if they could go back in time knowing what was going to happen, they would still adopt him, I think, all over again. They would still do it all over again because that's love and that's the kind of people that they were. And when I hear that story, when I think about those events, I think of this right here, that Jesus knew Judas was going to sell him up the river for 30 pieces of silver, Yet he still chose to love him, to invite him into the Twelve, to invite him to the Last Supper, and ultimately call him friend. I think if we're honest, there wasn't just one person in that room that night who had betrayed Jesus in some way or another. There were twelve. Just like in this room, or if you're watching online, we've all sinned against Jesus, and in doing so, maybe not physically or literally sold him or sold him to the religious leaders to be arrested, but in doing so, have betrayed his love and crucified him. But the good news is that even though Jesus knew before the dawn of time that this would happen, God loved each and every single one of us so much that he would die for our sins, that he would send his son to die for our sins, take our punishment in our place, because that's what his love does. We keep reading verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. 
This is my blood of the covenant, or some manuscripts say the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. He uses symbolism here to impress his points in his disciples' hearts and minds. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. The old covenant is soon to be gone, and no longer does your righteousness and our relationship depend on your obedience to the law. It depends on our relationship and on my love, the love of Jesus. No longer do we need to sacrifice lambs because the lamb has sacrificed himself. I want to point out one last thing as we, as we start to wrap up here, and that was that Jesus was certain of two things. The first, he knew he was going to die. The Son of Man will go just as it is written. But the other is that he knew his kingdom would come. Look at verse 25. Truly I tell you, the HCSB translation phrases it in a way I like a little bit better. He says, I assure you, I promise you, I am certain that I will not drink again until that day when I drink anew in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was certain of the cross, but was just as certain of his glory. And how can Jesus paint a picture of hope in this time, in this moment, this complex moment of a lot of different things, of intimacy with his close friends, of, of sorrow, of betrayal? How can he paint a picture of hope? It's because even though he knew that Judas would betray him, even though he knew that we would sin, he knew that God's love conquers all sin. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us. And we thank you for your love that we don't deserve. We pray that as we go about our lives, we would live out your will, that we would love you, that we would love others. And we thank you for offering us a chance to be a part of your kingdom. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.